On this episode, I'm speaking with Brandon Reed, founder of Loft 64, a creative design firm for immersive rooftop amenities and outdoor living experiences. Brandon is an entrepreneur, visionary, and closet halo gamer enthusiast known for his charisma, witty optimism, and of course, creativity. Over the last 10 years, he and his team have worked on some of the most prestigious projects in Salt Lake City, including Fourth West and more recently, the Post District. Let's dive into my conversation with Brandon. All right, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Happy to be here, my friend. Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's, take, a, let's, let's take a dive. Let's jump right in and, and, and tell me a little bit about your hometown and what your family and friends were like as a kid, because I know you have a, a pretty cool, cool origin story and, and also maybe a cooler original city town name that you came from, too. Well, I'll tell you this much. I've already accomplished my life's goal, which was to not live in my hometown that I grew up in. (laughs) (laughs) So, but um, as far as growing up, had a really great childhood, like fantastic family. Um, I grew up as, I guess my parents would say an angry child, but um, had lots of neighborhood friends, really into like alternative sports. And so skateboarding, snowboarding, all those kinds of things. I just was like geared towards that growing up. Uh, my family, two brothers. I'm the oldest. Um, like I said, I had a great family, but I, for some reason, growing up, had like a had issues with my family, even though they were amazing. It was like mm. I I don't know if it was just my anger issues, but I just kind of saw them as like not as cool as me, and I probably <laughs> was not cool at all. But it was just like these guys aren't you know as cool as me. I'm somehow the coolest thing ever. So so anyway, my my parents were patient with me there. So who told you that they thought that you would become a serial killer? I got to know, like, yeah. are you going to, are you going to, are you going to label anyone or just say someone in the yeah. family said that? I'll just say my uncle, um, we were at actually, oh, where were we? I had a nephew. I was going to see a nephew that had just got home from school or something. And my uncle was there and this is my mom's brother, one of her younger brothers. We just got talking and, and they're like, we're just so amazed at how well you turned out. Like we, we had such low hopes for you. We were just with as angry as you were, I thought you were going to be a serial killer. So Ugh. kind of in that realm. And I was like, really? You thought I was going to be a serial killer? That's pretty harsh. That's so, tough. And he's, he's a pretty matter of fact guy, like really great guy, but, but just tells you how it is. He doesn't yeah. mince words. So, and Hey, you made it out, you know, a serial killer. So, so far as we all know, not. and that's great. Yeah. yeah. So you were into like the outdoors, snowboarding stuff, alternative yeah. sports. I feel like that was a really, cause I grew up in, in a similar, I'm sure a similar time period where it was like, you know, the warp tour and like the vans kind of like skate scene was happening and like some of the like rock and grunge music scene was happening. And I imagine you kind of like just came up in that kind of fit, fit that bill pretty well. I feel like a lot of, uh, youths of our era probably did. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like Bones Brigade, if you want to go way back to the roots, you know, Tony Hawk, when he was first like in the Bones Brigade, that's yep. when I started skateboarding because kind of when they, when they got that. So always had aspirations to be some pro skateboarder or snowboarder, lived in a town, didn't have any of the cool stuff that you'd watch on videos, them doing stuff, you know, so we made the best of it. But yeah, the grunge era through high school loved, you know, remember when Nirvana came out, uh, Pearl Jam, all those, all those great bands. Those got me through a lot of fun uh, high school years and a lot of great inspiration while snowboarding on the slopes. Mm. 
Yeah, so, I'm I'm at a phase now where I'm I'm teaching my son about he's only two, but I'm teaching my son yeah, about yeah. about Pearl Jam and he's he's into a few of the songs. So getting them started early. Um, you said before that your house growing up was actually a really big inspiration for for you and, and, and specifically what what did you mean by that? Because I think that could go a couple different ways. Yeah, yeah. So so the house I grew up in, I this I guess goes back maybe to my anger issues or whatever, but um I just did not like our house. I was just once again, it was like I felt like it was too small. Um I remember hating the carpet in the house and it was a tiny house. I'm talking like 800, 900 square feet. And I remember my dad did an addition and added another like 300, which was our kind of great room. We even had a wood burning stove in it, but I just remember thinking like, oh man, this carpet is ugly. The layout is wrong. Just had a lot of things like that for some reason. Like, I don't even know why I was into skateboarding, snowboarding. Why would I care about the layout of a house? But, mm. but it just a lot of things bugged me about it, you know? Yeah. And so when, when you were, I mean, it seems like you were noticing those things as a young, younger guy. So fast forward yeah. to like high school and college, let's say, um, where did your interests align at that point? Like, were you already thinking about, you know, this idea of sort of design and, and architecture and, and so forth, or not even on the radar yet? Yeah, I would say, um, I always, for some reason also, maybe it was part of that, uh, just that alternative type of thing, but loved art. I used to just draw things randomly, you know, and in my basement, in my basement room. And so art, and then, uh, kind of a little bit understood architecture. And so in high school, I was like, how do I marry those two? Um, got into heard of AutoCAD or whatever. And there was a drafting club. My best friend was in, and I was like, it seems nerdy, but let's, let's do that. So it was part of that and kind of fell in love with this idea of just like being able to draw things so specific. So I kind of was able to marry those a little bit as far as just my, my interests and uh, kind of perk my attention, at least like as high school evolved and you're getting ready to graduate, you're like, what am I going to do? I thought either airline pilot, architect or artist. And I thought starving artist. I heard too many uh, horror stories about that. Like you'll never make money. Architecture, um, being an airline pilot, whatever. I thought, I don't want to go to the Air Force. They thought that they said that was the best route to go. And my eyesight wasn't the greatest. So it kind of led me to architecture. So I thought I'm going to be an architect, you know? And so you ended up going to Utah state, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet you didn't go there for architecture and there's a story there because yeah. you know, architecture versus what you ended up in. would love to hear a little bit more about that story. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, so high school graduate, um, I'm just thinking, okay, I have a year before I, I have to make any big decisions. My friends were heading up to this college, like two hours North of where I lived. Um, didn't really look into what they even had at school. And I get up there, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to be this architect or a potential. They didn't even have architecture up there. And I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb, but they had this thing called landscape architecture and took a couple classes in that one. Remember it was basic graphics and just kind of fell in love. I was like, wow, this is actually super cool. I could marry architecture and art in kind of a way of just fell in love with plan graphics and anything graphic and kind of creative. Uh, I was just like, this is it. So, so once I discovered that, took that class, I was just like, I'm going to be a landscape architect. And so from then on out, I was just like, I would tell everyone, this is what I'm going to do. Didn't look into it. Mm -hmm. Didn't look into salary, into 
future and to really what that meant. But I just thought architecture, art kind of can do it all. So yeah, kind of how it ended up at least. And, and someone, someone along the way told you, um, Hey man, you know, Hey Brandon, things are not going to be as easy as they're in college. Like the, the, the firm, when you get into the real world, the firms are going to work you to death. You're going to be doing 60 hour, 80 hour weeks. Um, and that's going to be your life forever. Um, and so I think talk to me about that transition from leaving that program and then kind of heading into the real world, because, you know, you were kind of hearing that in one ear and I think out of the, or out of, uh, one ear and maybe with one eye, but out of the other eye, you're kind of sort of still had your eyes set on something there and, and you had some early experiences, um, early, early professional experiences that I think really sort of painted the direction you started to ultimately take. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, so yeah, I had, I don't know if it was directly told to me, it probably was, but just, they had this notion of, they painted this picture that was going to be this nightmare horror story, work 60, 80 hours a week, get paid for 40. You're just kind of a cad monkey type thing where they don't necessarily value right at first. And I just, I just thought there's no way I want some life balance there. So early in my career, I made the decision. I think part of it too, is I just didn't maybe have the confidence then on. I had some other friends in the, in the group that were like, really, they really did well. And I actually did well too. Um, I kept up with them, but I, they just had a little bit of confidence, maybe more experience. And they, they ended up going to those types of jobs. Um, one went to Denver, another went to San Francisco type of a thing, working for these big firms. I ended up going for, uh, I did an internship the year previous to that, to, to me graduating at a design build firm. And honestly, like a couple months, months into that already, I was like, this is probably not what I'm going to do. But guess what I ended up doing a year later, kind of took the easy route. I thought this might give me a better path to at least have more freedom because they had never hired a designer before. So I started the job at a design build firm. I don't even know if it'd be called a firm, a construction company that happened to hire me as a designer. And I was bored after three months. <laughs> and then fast forward three years later, I was still there. They went out of business mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I had to find another job. So I was on, I was unemployed for a few months until I found a temp through a temp agency. I worked for an architecture firm, multidisciplinary um, in town in Salt Lake city. And it was going to be two weeks as far as all they needed me, my help for, and ended up being about a four month uh, stint. And I was thinking, okay, you know, they're going to end any day now. I didn't know when, and starting to look for other jobs. Like I got to find a full time. They were like, we can't hire you full time. So down to, uh, a firm in Las Vegas that literally the day they gave me the job that I accepted when I went to work at MHTN, which is this architecture firm, they let me go. So I was like, it was meant to be. Yeah. So I went to Vegas. It, and so I would say you, you literally kind of picked everything up, packed up, moved down to Vegas, sort of, sort of right away, living kind of like the, the young, uh, the young Vegas dreams, maybe not down on the strip, but you know, certainly yes. like in the, in the, in the vicinity. Right. Um, what was that? Yeah. What was that step? What was that step like? Cause I feel like that was a sort of an intermediate step, um, as you got to, you know, kind of like a couple more stepping stones into loft six, four. So talk to me yeah. about that move to Vegas and kind of, there was an interesting story that came afterwards as well with, with a friend, but, um, and, and yeah. sort of business partner, but, but yeah, walk us through those next two steps and, and then let's dive into loft six, four for sure. 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 So, so yeah, take this job in Vegas. I was still single, but I was dating a girl at the time um, who ended up being my wife. Uh, you know, 
she didn't like the fact that I was moving down there and that made it the distance kind of hard, but took the job. It was the right job. Um, just anything full time, honestly, at that point, but I had aspirations that I thought, you know, everyone down there is going to work on the casinos. You're going to get to do all this creative work. Well, we ended up doing a lot of interesting projects, but it was, none of it was casino, casino based or resort based, you know? So, um, always wanted that type of work and just, I worked there for about three and a half years. I ended up getting married to this girl too. And, and she moved down with me. Uh, and we were down there for about three and a half years, but, uh, learned so much just uh, even about business. Like I was thinking I'm going to own my mm. own business sometime. I'd already thought of, I'd always thought of that in school. So I would pay attention to all that kind of stuff at this firm. And, and my boss there just, he was, as I look back now, I still refer to the things that he did. Um, inspirational things and also just things the way he did business and i even mm. practice that now which we can obviously we'll talk about a little more as far as last six four but but gained a lot of experience there and then you know within a few years my wife was pregnant with our first and she wanted to get back she was from salt lake and so was i and so i should say i was from Tooele, right which is a small town that you referenced um but we wanted to get back mo mostly her to be honest and i was a little bored at this this firm and so uh, started talking to my friend. I had talked to him actually before I moved to Vegas and he had started a firm, but wasn't quite ready. And so I put together this graphic workshop with a guy that had taught me a lot and did that in Vegas and invited him to come. And we got talking and he's like, Hey, you know how you mentioned possibly teaming up? I could use your help if you're interested. And two weeks later, we packed everything up, moved wow. back to Salt Lake. Like just, it just made sense, you know? It made sense from at least ambitiously, right? Financially, it did not make sense because we left a house. It was the bottom. It was mm -hmm. the market 2007 when just the bubble, the bubble burst, right? And so mm. we had to rent our house um, for a year and a half, losing a lot of money on it, even renting it. But it, you know, in-laws let us live in the house, live in their house when we moved back, and just kind of partnered up with my my buddy at the time and worked with him for about five and a half years until my wife reminded me one day, Hey, you know, you always said you're going to do your own thing. And there was a moment there where it just kind of made sense as well. And so honestly, mm -hmm. within another, maybe there's just this pattern of a couple of weeks, but when things are right, I, I, I don't hesitate to make the right, make, make a decision. So a yeah. week or two after she reminded me the fact that she was comfortable with it and that I was thinking about doing that, she was just like, I think you should go for it. And so mm. told my partner, we were literally a week or maybe even days away from inking a deal officially to, for me to be a partner with him. And uh, I moved on, <laughs> started Loft 6 Point. Interesting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at authenticff.com. Well, let's um let me put a pin in that just for a minute because I want to call back something yeah. you said, and I was I, I remember being curious about this when we uh, spoke the last few times. But uh, yeah. you went to Vegas and you were really excited about working with the casinos, doing some cool stuff, and and sort of working on those those buildings and those experiences. Um, who gets those jobs? Is it all sort of out of, out of town, out of state people that are getting those jobs or organizations, or is it, is it sort of a, a good old boys club where it's, you know, very, 
tight knit and only a few local firms get those, get those jobs. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I found out down there was, was it seemed like my boss was kind of averse to those types of projects. He had been burned, I guess, and not paid well or not paid at all on projects. And so he was kind of like negatively impacted. Um, and, but what I did find out, yeah, is that most of those jobs do not, are not given to local firms. Um, it's all like outside firms, right? So bigger, bigger name landscape architects. Um, there's one out of, I think it's San Diego or actually Newport beach, somewhere like that, that had done, had a good relationship with, um, some of those casino owners. And so they got most of that work. And so I realized I'm probably never going to work on this stuff living here, mm. you know? Yeah. And that was, that I was, that I, I would, that I did kind of want to do, you know, I always thought it would be cool to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Very interesting. Um, well let's, okay. So let's jump into the story of loft six, four. I, I mean, if you've seen any of my stuff, I love a good, good story behind the name and this is definitely a unique name. So, um, my yeah. understanding is that it links back to that childhood house. Um, and, and I want to hear a little bit more about the, the origin story and, and kind of what it all means when it's put together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, if you if you personally want to know, okay, Loft 6-4, what does that mean? Well, first off, I just never wanted it to be Brandon Redesign or anything related to my name because I saw those acronyms that that most firms turn into. They originally start with someone's name, right? A founder's name or several co-founders type names, and then they go to an acronym when they want to pass it down. So I learned enough at Landform, which is the firm I worked with previously with my buddy, um, that marketing was really important, the naming and just like being trying to create a brand. And so I thought I want this to represent more than me. And, but, but the interesting thing is it does have a personal, um, meaning to me where it loft six, four loft to elevate six, four was, was the number, the house numbers from my childhood home. Although you would say it was 64 West 400 North. Um, mm -hmm. it just sounded cooler for me for whatever reason to be six. <laughs> Yeah. So there's yeah. a little confusion. It causes some <laughs> polarization and curiosity, but it really means elevate your environment because that inspiration yeah. in my home to, to want to make it better growing up. Um, that's, that was kind of the internal meaning. So. Okay. I'm curious if that decision to start your own firm was one based in, in stress or if it came from a calm place, because when I speak to, to founders and entrepreneurs, it seems to be all over the place and, 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 you know, if you're not around other small business owners long enough, to some extent, you don't necessarily know what you're getting into until you're sort mm -hmm. of in the thick of it. Where did that decision, where did it, what was the place that decision ultimately came from for you? Yeah. So I would say this from the moment that I just really dove in, it's been nothing but like, I literally say all the time, I'm living the dream. I live in my dream. It's literally felt like that. Like, of course you have the stressful moments, and there was the stress, like literally we had no savings when I decided to do this. Um, there was no like backlog. Okay. I've got this money to invest. Like my dad kind of ponied up some money to kind of give me enough, like I'll call it confidence money to start it. Um, but the good thing is, is I've been developing relationships and paying attention, like I mentioned in Vegas to like how people do business and basically ran or co-ran this business previous to, to Loft 64 to where I had all this experience. I knew how to do proposals. I had all this, um, I had a lot of confidence going into it that I have enough relationships that said we would, yeah, we would love to continue working with you regardless of where you were. Right. 
I had this enough mm. business experience that it, there was nothing that was uncomfortable. So going out, it was more just the stress of like, okay, I got to take care of my family. I got to make sure this works, you know? And so thankfully we had enough work that year that we were in the black. Like I had had the best year I'd ever had in our first year, you know, mm. and we've steadily grown it over the last 10 years. So we've always had positive years. And so it's I love been really living my dream. Like it's been so exciting to kind of see this grow and evolve over time. So thankfully yeah. it's just been an amazing experience for me. That's great. And, and, and your firm now today is known, known very much for, uh, or it very much has a rooftop focus today, but let's say a decade ago, did it start out that way? Did it have the same sort of clarity and mission around it or, or completely different back then? Yeah. So the mission was to have a business <laughs> that made money, right? <laughs> like maintain. Yeah. So it was whatever relationships we had. I, I kind of use the term, the analogy, cast a wide net and, and see what fish you bring back in, right? If you were fishing. Um, and so we took everything, right? We were just generalists. We were looking at things, um, any project, any opportunity, we were open to it and excited to work on it, right? And so through that, we got all sorts of ex different types of projects. And um, through that process, did a couple rooftops with some developers who were like, hey, there's nothing interesting about some rooftop projects we've done. We've got another one here. We'd love you to look at it. And so we were able to just do something interesting because what we saw was, was, and they acknowledged, they're like, this is the most boring. It's just basically concrete and a few chairs mm -hmm. and a fire pit, a few planners. And it was very underwhelming. And so we put something together. We just took a big risk, put something together, put it in 3D. And they were just like, this is awesome. We should do it. You know? And so it kind of opened my eyes. I was like, this is a really fun way, a fun space, kind of a scary space. Cause I think a lot of landscape architects get afraid of like, I think we're all probably afraid, at least in the architecture and construction world of lie being liable for things. Right. Like right. we're taking a lot of risk when we design and then you put that on top of a building and you're thinking there's a lot of issues that could arise from not understanding how to design on a building. You're putting water, you're putting soil, you're putting heavy objects. So I think that shot a lot of people away. So we were able to do something creative and I thought this is a creative space. It allows us to do really, we have to be really creative because every square inch counts on these rooftops because they're, they're fairly small, right? Depending on the project. So that was kind of the aha of like, oh, wow, this could be really a really cool space to work in. And so fast forward a couple more years, we got another opportunity within that those years to do a, kind of a game changer project for that kind of a set a new standard for Salt Lake, which was it was called Fourth West Apartments. And it ended up being about an acre of rooftop space over a parking structure um, with oh, wow. 500 unit development. And so we got to design and move and, you know, working with the developer, they were really interested and creative. They allowed us a lot of freedom and it just, it just clicked. It just made sense. It was just fun. And I thought this could be, this, this has legs. Like if there are more opportunities like this, I'm probably more interested in these types of spaces mm. than anything else. Mm. And mostly for the reason that I think what our secret sauce really is, is our creativity our desire to like do something truly unique. And, uh, you know, it almost sounds trite to say that because 
what designer doesn't want to do something really creative and shouldn't, you know, should be separated by their creativity, but it's always what we've been hired for. You know, we tend to be a little more expensive, but our creativity is the thing that, that resonates through all the projects as they hire us. Cause we're more creative, let's say than the standard landscape architect. And so you marry that. And then also understanding a little bit of marketing and going, okay, at this point, like this was a few years into the business. It was, we need to figure out who we are, like Loft 6.4, what do we represent? What's a focus? What's a positioning that we could take in the market, whether it's expertise? I didn't, I, I just, I knew enough that I didn't want to be a generalist and just mm. thought, okay, is there something that we could own that Loft 6.4 could truly be, be known for? Um, and so hired a marketing group and invested a lot with them in 20. 17 to kind of and that's where we started exploring rooftop amenities and they asked the question if you guys were to put your whole business on the line for this rooftop amenities what percentage of projects would you say you have of that are rooftop amenities and it was it was a great question because it was like we really don't have we have a few right but if we had to depend our business stake our business on making on being successful um, through just rooftop amenity projects, we couldn't have done it. So mm. it took a couple years of us just, they wrote weekly blog posts on rooftop amenities to where that's all anyone identified us as. And so the thing that they did really well was just ingrain it so consistently that on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on, you know, everything to the point where my family was like, is this all you guys talk about? Like, we want to see some personal right. stuff on your, on your Facebook. And I was like, I think people are getting it, you know, like rooftop amenities. And so it was also this cool thing where they stopped talking about us being landscape architects and going, yeah, I got a brother-in-law that does landscaping or they always just misunderstood. You hear landscape architecture and people would be, people are always like, oh yeah, I got a brother-in-law that does that or must be hot in the summers or can you diagnose my tree or my plants, you know? <laughs> and the, the, that difference alone was was amazing the fact i didn't have to explain people just kind of were like more excited too like rooftop amenities that sounds interesting you know like you do cool spaces on rooftops like that's, that's awesome and um through those years by being known more for that or at least like positioning ourselves that way we started to get more of those types of projects and that was obviously our focus too was like how do we make a flip happen so let's say when we started that that positioning let's say we had 20 percent of our our business would be from rooftops um, in 2018, 2019 is where it kind of flipped. And we were like, holy cow, most of our projects are actually rooftops now. Mm. And people are hiring us specifically for that. And they were also paying us more because mm. they didn't, they saw us as meaningfully different. And, and when that flip occurred, what was the, the linchpin? You know, what, what was it just the buildup of, you know, those blog posts and the awareness and the campaigns and slowly getting, additional clients or was there something more high level or, you know, mm -hmm. less, less specific that happened that you can kind of point to? Yeah, I would say, um, I guess with this marketing group too, in 2017, when we hired them, they're like, let's just try this for a year or two, see if rooftop amenities, if, if it has legs, right. If it's going to stick, if you're going to make money doing it. And we were seeing all of that. And so, we, we got a few referrals. Um, I can say the linchpin, if you had to pick something, was the fact that we did Fourth West. And it mm -hmm. was 
developers tend to do, if you know anything about real estate, um, which I imagine you do, working in our similar industry, is they have to have comps, right? When they go out and look at a project or a project to build, they look what's around, what's been built that we could say, we've got proof of concept that we could either match, we have to match, or that will make us more competitive, right? So they have to know what's been what's been there. So Fourth West kind of set the standard where everyone now in Salt Lake had a reference point to go, not only is it rooftop amenities, but it's a 500 unit project. It's on the west side, which we used to joke and say west side will be the new east side, which if you know Salt Lake, east side is kind of known for to be the higher end, you know, more luxury, uh, more wealthy people live on the east side. The west side is more run down, especially in the city. It's kind of where the gangs, if there were gangs in Salt Lake, just kind of the more like the poor status, let's say, people live. And so um, this project kind of set the standard of West Side, making it cool. Developers now at a reference point to look and go, whoa, they they took this to a whole new level too, to have like mm. 30 to 40,000 square feet, Olympic size swimming pool. Um, and this is talking interior and exterior amenities, right? We're talking... Um, they had it all. They had everything. And and so anyway, that set the linchpin and just seeing that, okay, you guys have done a few of these successfully now and, and you're creative. You're able to implement these on a, in a really creative way that we haven't seen because there really wasn't anything good in rooftops anyway. Um, that it was just like people were starting to refer us and people were just starting to uh, see our stuff and go, yeah, we've been following you for years. We see your Instagram, we see your LinkedIn, or we've seen your yeah. website. Everything was congruent to where when mm -hmm. we said uh, that we were, that we focused on rooftop amenities, that our website said it, that our messaging, when we sent a blog post, there was no incongruity. There was, we had built a lot of integrity just for the fact that people see that and they, they can recognize that, well, these guys really mean what they say. They're not just saying that to, to say it they actually are doing the work they're doing it well it's creative you know what i mean they're talking about yeah. it they seem to have expert insights on it they're always talking about it and so it all just kind of kind of made sense and it's been a still a slow evolution since 2017 but you know here we are six years into that and i would say it's stronger than ever i'm you mentioned um you mentioned social media, you mentioned Instagram, and I'm, and I'm curious with Instagrams, particularly how you feel like that platform has impacted your growth. Because if, if listener will have it in the show notes, but if listeners go to yeah. the, you know, your page, you got a great following, you have, you know, beautiful photography. I imagine mm -hmm. it didn't start out exactly that way, but I'm still curious how that has helped springboard into new opportunities. Yeah. So I would say this, we've had a lot of clients over the years. I don't know that we've had anyone call us necessarily directly that I could attribute. They saw our Instagram page and said, I saw that post you did. I want to hire you or we'd like you to look at our next project. Right. But we have had clients that once we start working with them, they either say, I'm one of those nerdy people that actually reads your blog posts and I love the insights you share or just, you know, they're, they're, they seem to resonate like it's more than just fluff. Like we actually feel, it feels like we know what we're talking about. And then with Instagram, they're either like, we really love the reels that you put together. Those, those um, sketch videos that you do, or they're like, we've been following that stuff. So I think what it does is it, I don't know that it's necessarily giving us the work, but if you understand marketing enough, it usually takes 
multiple touch points for people before they're ready to buy. And so mm -hmm. I think what it's done is solidified our expertise, our credibility, and if anything, just given clients more confidence to go, yeah, I saw them on Instagram, saw them on LinkedIn, I saw, them, I saw right. the website, it's got beautiful photography, they seem to do these sketches we love to watch, you know, just all these things kind of come together. And so I wish I could say, man, yeah, on, you know, April 15th, 2018, that guy hired us through Instagram and this person hired us on LinkedIn or whatever. But I think it's more just the amalgamation of all that stuff mm. that just helps people make a more confident decision because they feel like they know you or know your work. There's confidence there, right? So like yeah. um, a term I learned um, with our latest marketing group who we've been using for the last four years called Newfangled, they, uh, their founder, Mark O'Brien, likes to say, market hard, sell easy, right? The marketing is something that you just always need to do. And if you're doing well, you kind of build this flywheel effect where you could turn it up or down, but it's something that's just always out there. But if you're doing that well, the selling is actually easy. Usually when they come, they're ready to buy. They're ready to go. Right. We want right. you. We're just hoping we can afford you or we're hoping that you're willing to work with us, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Let me, uh, I'm going to pivot slightly and, and sort of use that as, as a pivot point, particularly with regards to sales, because I'm interested about the challenges or, or pushbacks that you might get within the, I'll call it the rooftop amenity space as compared to the incumbents that may already be closely aligned with the customers that you aim to work with. I mean, we see this quite a bit on the brand and marketing side, especially in multifamily, you know, there's there's deep roots and, and sometimes longstanding relationships in place. Um, even if the work, let's say quite, isn't up to the standard or up to par or, or even better, you know, where it needs to be. Yeah. Do you face yeah. headwinds and, and challenges like that as well? I would say we do still, but I would say a lot less than what I found of positioning the power of it. When you have that congruity with your marketing and your messaging is all in line, and you can literally state, you know, we help urban multifamily developers create immersive rooftop amenities and outdoor living experiences. And that is like to your core who you are then. And there's there's no real other comparisons. It makes it, I guess, the perception there to a developer or a future prospect would be these guys seem to really know what they're doing. Right. And so there's a perception there. And I would say that's the biggest thing that I've learned is the perceived value of what we can add to them. Even though we're a, you're going to pay a premium to hire us, we're, we'll actually save you more money because of our expertise in executing it well. That by even it seems counterintuitive, but pay you a higher fee. It might even be a more expensive project, but the investment you make is a two x, a three x, a five x return on your investment and the peace of mind that a developer would have. So it makes it easier for them to make that decision because they feel like they know you already. And then the sales process, like we kind of alluded to, it's a lot more like, I just view sales as more of conversations. So we like to have what we call value conversations with our clients. And by doing that too, we're also separating ourselves because we're asking the questions that maybe a lot of others don't. We're less order takers and we really are trying to be expert and going, okay. Because we understand we see all these paths as being experts in this space. When you do enough of anything, you start to recognize patterns and you start to go, okay, you really have like true insights. And so the questions we're asking are like, we really do care about their metrics. We care about their goals. Like what, what's going to be a home run? 
what's at stake if you don't get this right? You know, like questions like that are things we're asking. We're asking them to look to the future and go, hey, three years from today and you're, you know, we're meeting together and you're really happy. What's happened for you to be really happy on this project? Mm. And it causes them to think. And if nothing else, they can see these guys seem to really care about our goals. They're not just going, okay, what, right. what amenities do you want? You know, we're not order takers right. and just like, going to regurgitate those. It's more like, let's understand where you're coming from. Why are you doing this project to begin with? Mm. Um, since we've been doing that and then off, also offering pricing options to where the question in their mind is less about how can we engage or less about who should we engage and more about how should we engage Loft 6.4 because we're presenting options for them of like, here's option A, here's option B, here's option B, op option C. They get to kind of pick instead of, in, at least in my industry, it's more of a lump sum or just like, it's an ultimatum proposal where it's more of a contract that they right. have price in there. The clients don't even care about all that. They're looking to see what's the bottom line. Um, but what we found in our proposals too, is that we're focusing, trying to focus more on those goals. Like they can see that we've listened. They can see that we actually care about what they're going to do. We understand budgets. We understand what we call a value assessment of how to value a project, um, or how we can add value so they can see this is truly an investment. It's not just, we're going to, we're not invest. We're not going to just put money into, uh, amenities just because they need to check the box it's more like this recipe of how we're going to help them um, in their overall project get uh, achieve the goals that they want or the goals that they've set out to do you know like they can see us as yeah. a valued partner and a collaborator and it kind of lowers that that barrier that sometimes they put in thinking a designer if i tell them my budget they're going to just design to that budget or they're always going to exceed it because they're you know, they don't really care about what we care about. They're just trying to do the cool design so they can put their name on it and it can be an homage to them. I might be right. getting off topic. That's no, I, I think you're starting to, I'm, you're starting to kind of drift into the next topic I want to cover, which is brand and brand experience because between the, the, the content and the, the imagery that you share from your project outcomes and honestly is, you know, sort of the, the branding and project outcomes that we share from our work at authentic, you know, I, I feel like we align very closely that that matters more than ever in the built environment, especially as these new multifamily projects start to uh, come online and, and are being strategized and really thought through um, post COVID, I would even say. So let's dive into that topic. You know, what do you feel like yeah. you are seeing in, in that literal built space when it comes to brand, meaning is there a particular combination of, of, of strategy and brand that makes your work easier or perhaps said another way, how important is a great brand to be a springboard so that your work is then accelerated and almost like a, like a hat tip to something that's already been started for you. Yeah. Such a good question. And this is something I'd say as us doing enough of these that we've realized that like we've seen a different, like uh, we probably attract a different developer now to where they even they care about that more than we've seen in the past. And we acknowledge that, um, for example, that's why we, I, I was so attracted to kind of what you guys do and, and, and your podcast and all that is that we do align so well, but, but that idea that like that there's an identity to a project to begin with that a developer's thought enough to go, okay, we're going to invest tens, 
to hundreds of millions into a project and they're not going to think about like what that identity, what the demographic, the psychographic, like all those things that go into what's the neighborhood look like around them? Like what's the identity that we need this project to be so that it can really be unique regardless of the competitive competition around? How can this project stand out on its own in, for its own merit and attract, um, even if you have to be uber competitive, what's going to make it memorable, right? And so identity to us, like we're all about creating outdoor living experiences and setting stages for the tenants to kind of have and create their own experiences and be attracted to this property because they see, wow, there's value in me kind of identifying. Like if you look at even uh, products, like Apple to me does a great job at kind of uh, like you buy it because of more about like what it says about you or the experience that you're going to have. Right, um, right. These user experiences or the self-identity. So like for us, it's way easier to kind of, how do we blend work? Cause we're kind of coming in preferably if, if it already, if there's already an identity in place. So they've hired someone like your firm, you and your firm, right. To where they have an idea where this is going. That informs us on how can we, add to by the design of the rooftop amenities like how is that going to play in this overall narrative and these experiences that they want uh to have because for example um if you go to, I'll, I'll refer back to fourth west this is one where they did a great job at identifying the the rooftop amenities okay it was called the sky lounge when you go in the elevator um it says sky lounge there's a specific button you push on the elevator which is the top floor right and it takes you to the sky lounge but they didn't do that to there was four other courtyards that no one ever talks about that are really cool as well that helps sell projects. Like they were telling me, I remember right. that when they were done, they couldn't even sell those courtyards, even though they showed renderings of how they would look, they were just seeing a dirt pile and going, you know, they couldn't sell it, and, but they didn't even name those. So, so back to the identity, like to even point to, naming the courtyards, there's a specific identity of each courtyard or that the outdoor spaces also have like, some perceived value of like, I'm going to go to the Sky Lounge. I'm going to go to the, you know, barbecue court, whatever, some cool name. How does that all play into the identity? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's you, you said something there is, and, and you said something to me the last time we spoke that, that triggered a thought. And that was, you said something to the effect of everyone always wants to stand out, but the flip side of that with so many developers is, you know, give us three names you haven't used yet. We'll roll with it. Mm -hmm. That's what it's going to be. Sort of a sort of a a thoughtless exercise for a, a a an ownership group that's putting in tens to hundreds of millions of dollars for a property, which is obviously mm -hmm. mind blowing. But you made a point that I think is is really important because we run into this too. And you said how can we design something if we don't have an understanding of the identity of the building? Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, some would say it's a chicken or the egg thing. And I think you and I agree that no, it's not, there needs to be some strategy in a, in a story and at least an initial brand and brand identity to then key off of that for all of these other, uh, check boxes that need to be executed and done. Well, you can't necessarily come into a blank slate and be told, all right, you know, we hired you for this, go, go do your thing. And, but you have nothing to, nothing to reference. Um, I imagine that's a really difficult place for you all to be in. 
Yeah. And so, like you said, the chicken or the egg, yes, we've done both sides. Right. And I would say to your point, like having the identity or at least an idea of it, right. Like we're, we're creative enough to, and we're happy to like, we also like to think outdoor can influence indoor and, and even influence architecture. Like, um, yeah, there's a, there's a few projects that I'm, that I know, um, I'm butch. I'm, I'm going to forget the name, so I won't even say it, but their whole idea was create, I create a nucleus and then build, have all the buildings kind of wrap around that of this identity. But it, it helps so much when you have a name, like just there's some narrative there, right? Like someone like you has come in and they're already informed to go, okay, this is our demographic. This is what, this is the identity. We might even have the name at that point. Um, I guess what I've seen too, alongside that is also interior designers, the architect. If we're all on the same page, it becomes such a, a more enjoyable experience to all kind of collaborate in that same realm and go, okay, interior, exterior, architecture, how do we all identify with that brand? How are we interpreting that? How are we, you know, cause it's going to go to the marketing and sales too. Right. So like, why can't you start forming that? Like most of these developers want to already have pre-lease pre-leasing opportunities. They want to be, they would prefer to be hundred percent leased up if they could, right. Before they even open the doors. So like, sure. how do you start setting that story if you don't even have that? And so we've seen on the flip side where it's what you alluded to was like, I even had a developer say, okay, cause we started, we start asking them now early, like, in the beginning stages of our conversation, we go, is there branding in place? Do you have a firm? We even make referrals. Like, so referring someone like you early, if, if we're brought on early enough, is like, let's get them in place, you know, like, or at least start mm -hmm. having the conversations. We had one developer go, could you just design the monument signage? And then we will create the brand around that. And I thought, okay, in Oof. some ways that sounds yeah. cool. Like we need to dictate that, but to me, I've had way more success when we can take that logo, we can take the understanding of the brand and actually try and create space, mm -hmm. objects, elements that enhance that brand, right? That are 100%. in tune with it. It's powerful. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned um sort of this idea of of as a you know, as a creative, having constraints. There there are there are constraints and there are opportunities. And and when we when we have a, in this case, a brand identity in place, there's a constraint, right? Because there's not a totally blank slate that exists for you to sort of run wild with, with opportunity. And, and it's a balance to be fair. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. balance. And I think you use the word or use the phrase anchor points when you were talking to me about the last couple of times we connected, can you, can you kind of key in on what that is and what you're looking for at loft six, four, like, what are those? What are those anchor points and what are you what are you seeking those to be so that you can do your best work? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think the anchor points, number one, are having the right conversation up front, like I've already alluded to. It all begins with those first conversations with the you really want to be having those with the decision maker. And then you start to bring in the architect and, and branding, you know, all this the the design team to kind of start to inform you as far as like what are the constraints, right? If the architecture, let's say if the space we have to work with is too small to begin with, that's a constraint in itself, right? To go, okay. And I think one of the things I do love about this space that we're working in as far as amenities and on buildings is that we kind of have a built-in constraint. The architecture is the first constraint, right? The space we have to work with um, being up or elevated over, over however many units or however mm -hmm. many stories of parking 
is another constraint. All those already kind of are our initial constraints that we have to acknowledge. And to me, that maybe that's, I'll call them like cheat codes, but it's like if you have branding and an identity, that helps us already. It takes less. The constraint is there's already identi an identity in place, right? Right, and, right. And I find that freeing. I find those constraints freeing because um, they always taught us that in school. You look at opportunities and constraints, and they would always say the constraints yeah. really, if anything, um, I learned a term in a coaching group I was part of that basically the obstacle is the raw material for achieving your goals. Meaning if you flip that, you kind of get the answer to your question. Like if the building is the, is the constraint or the, or the theme is the constraint, you kind of already know, like that's the direction we need to take it. We've already got the parameters in some ways set versus if it, the hardest part would be to, if someone came to, to us in the wrong order and said, okay, we want you to come up with the theme. We want you to develop mm -hmm. the floor plan or the footprint when those are out of our yeah. realm. Right. But, but that would be so much harder to, for them to go, we value you guys so much and we want this whole thing to evolve and revolve around the landscape architecture, the, the exterior design. That would be a lot harder for us yeah. to do. We could probably come up with something, but then you got to, then you got to still, you know, bring in everyone else and have that, right. those conversations. But, but yeah, so, so those constraints are, I mean, there's always constraints and I, I look at those more as like the opportunities, honestly. I feel like there are going to be a lot of listeners that are now becoming very tuned in to rooftop amenity spaces, and they're going to want to kind of dig into certainly a lot of, of your work and probably scan your, your Instagram page for past projects. But as we get, begin to wrap up here, I, I, I want to ask, hit me with a project with a really cool rooftop amenity mix that, that you just love yeah. that stand out and, and maybe even something that you and your team look to as a North star um, as you kind of embark on new projects collectively? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I'm glad you asked that actually is I, I keep referencing fourth West. Um, to be honest, that happened in 2014. I think they sold it or they sold it in 2017, but they opened in 2016. That set a standard for Salt Lake, right? That a lot of architects and developers were, would reference. We now there's this project called post it's, it's known as the post district in our office. It's we call it post house which is really our portion, which is five apartment buildings over a square city block um, in the heart of town. Well, not in the heart of town, town, but as you get off the 15 exchange, um, you come right into this area. It's known as the Granary District, which is an up and coming neighborhood. A lot of attention's gone to it because, you know, it's literally a block of, there's, there's some existing buildings. So they're doing, you know, retrofit and kind of, value add type projects and infill projects but then they're also adding this new component and it feels almost like there's five five distinct buildings that all have kind of their own identity designed by the the same architect and there's actually another landscape architect that's doing that was hired out of denver doing all the street level we were hired by the local developer who we'd already had a relationship with to do just the rooftop portion of this mm -hmm. but if we're talking another 30 40,000 but spanning over various elevations the largest portion um, has an indoor and outdoor pool effect on this 20,000 square foot deck 
There's a, a spa that's got that you'll see from the road as you come in. It's basically one side of it is glass. So you'll see right into the spa from the street level. Um, all these outdoor barbecue seating, you know, great landscape. There's going to be this focal tree in the center of the pool. So we try to do real trees in the in, inside the pool. We look at, you know, we always try and look outside of ourselves. But like, you know, looking at Thailand and all these great exotic places to try and introduce these ideas here. And with the extreme constraints we have with the weather, didn't they weren't really confident to do that. So they're doing this realistic looking tree, which they look amazing. It's going to be in the middle of the pool. I'm thinking almost like they're going to have these Instagrammable moments, you know, to really make it stand out. But this project, I believe, so strongly, it's going to be the game, like the next game changer. I, I keep saying Post District will be the next Fourth West, where once this is built and the attention goes to it, it's just going to be a really successful project. It already is, but it's going to be the talk of the town. It's going to be really cool. And so I'm hoping now people will go, oh, yeah, you guys did Post District. You did Post House, you know, right. and Fourth West can kind of be gone, you know. Not that it's yeah, bad, but sure. it's, it's time has come and gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll be sure to link some more information about the Post District in general, just uh, for listeners and, and viewers down in the show notes. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I want to end with a few yeah. rapid fire questions. The first being, in your mind, I mean, since you've been living it for the last decade, what is the most exciting shift in the rooftop amenities space that you've seen just in the last year or two? What would you say? Yeah. Well, COVID, I think, exacerbated this idea, which is a huge benefit, is I think with these projects that we mentioned earlier, is just a project or developers see that it's possible. They also have now have the mindset and the foresight to go, OK, we have to be competitive and you got a lot, a lot of outside development as well. So there's this there's just higher design, higher level, higher quality is coming to locally and abroad. But just developers mindset just seems they can make it pencil. So like people are just more willing to do these types of projects. So we're able to be even more creative, even more unique. That's probably mm. the biggest thing. Most most thing I'm the, probably the biggest thing I'm, I'm most excited for is just the fact that their minds seem to be a little more free and they're they're, they're more open for that for us to be our most creative. Right. And, yeah. and to push yeah. the envelope even further than we have before. All right. And I got to ask favorite book. What would you recommend to the listeners right now? Business of expertise by David C. Baker. Um, given, you know, our unique niche, that book has been pivotal in kind of helping us with the idea of positioning, the idea of niching down the importance of it and how actually what's crazy about uh, being in a niche or specializing is what I've, what I call you almost get a reverse pyramid where once you or I should say once you go in there's like a million doors that open up to you as far as possibilities when you kind of think if I niche down so clear so so specifically that it it closes a lot of doors and when in reality mm. I call it vivid technicolor but I kind of see more colorfully more I see more possibilities than ever because we understand the space enough to know all the constraints to know how we can push outside of the lines and the boundaries. That book's been really great in kind of helping us understand that. And now seeing it in practice, it's, it's awesome. Mm, awesome. I will, uh, I'll definitely link that in the show notes as well. Um, Brandon, man, it's been, a, I can't believe 
I always, yeah. I always say it, but, but time flies in these conversations and there's only one more thing to do here. And that is to roll out the red carpet for you to, to tell the listeners and viewers what you're up to and, and where they can find you online. Yeah. So I'd love to say I'm up to like really awesome things other than work, but you know, spending time with the family, going to pick up snowboarding again, getting hobbies is what I need to be doing more of, which I kind of gave up. Uh, we talked about snowboarding in the beginning, so I plan to pick that up again. And, uh, yeah, just where you can find me is just Instagram and LinkedIn are, are where you'll see us most active. So just loft six, four, all spelled out. You look us up, you'll find us. So probably the best awesome. places you can find us. So Brandon, thank you. Thank you again so much for joining yeah. me. Pleasure, man. Thanks again. It goes fast. <laughs>